The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou, Duncan Grieve here. Thank you so much for listening to The Fold in 2023, taking a little break over summer and would like to sort of bring you some of the, my favourite conversations from throughout the year. So uh, please enjoy this while I take a short break and we'll be back mid-late January. Uh, here's one of my favourites, Matewa. My guests today are Red Nicholson and Olivia Shivas, uh, both of a very new website platform called The Dealist. It is a, a place for disabled storytelling. It's, a, it's essentially a, a culture magazine by, for, about disabled people in Aotearoa. And... I've been lucky enough to, to work a little bit with the pair of them over the past couple of months while they're readying for launch. And I just don't think I've rarely, if maybe ever, come across such a singular and, and brilliant idea so well articulated and, and so sort of scrutinized and cared for as I as I have with the D-List. I think that they have really hit upon this kind of problem that that probably every disabled person could identify and that just the broader media hasn't been able to to figure out for reasons which they, they detail on this podcast so um i think this is a you know it's, it's a bit of a landmark this launch i have huge hopes for it they've it's it's well funded so that it can run for for multiple years and and i think in red it has a a a leader, a publisher who has a really specific vision for it and Olivia is just the perfect person to, to be editing it. So yeah, enjoy this conversation with Red Nicholson and Olivia Shivas on The Fold. Kia ora korua and welcome to The Fold. Um, so, so thrilled to have you along. Um, I wondered if you could start by just quickly introducing yourselves and, and talking, I guess, about your journeys to, to the start line of The D-List. Red, do you want to come in first? Kelda, yeah. Well, um, it's kind of been been a weird and winding trajectory for me. I actually started my my life as a as a high school teacher. I taught at the the mighty and um, and wonderful Onihongo High School for for about eight years. I was an English and media studies teacher, and I loved my time there. I think it really lit my passion for social justice. You know, I've always been interested in disability issues and disability rights, but I think that um, intersect that intersected in a very visceral way um, during my time as a high school teacher. And then I sort of um, did a bit more study and then and came out and, and have been working for the last five years at a creative agency. So I've been working at Curative, which is all about kind of the intersection between community and social marketing and advertising and communications. And so um, 
Yeah, it's been a it's been a real wild ride the last um, sort of thirteen years or so. But I think in some ways it's 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 all the ingredients that that has been necessary to to launch um, this project into the world. So that's been really exciting. And you, Olivia. So I always knew I wanted a career and to work in the media. I did all the right subjects at high school. If I went to Onihanga. Red would probably would have been my teacher for multiple subjects with English and media studies. And so I did a Bachelor of Communication Studies majoring in journalism. And um, my first kind of real job after that was actually working at Attitude Pictures. So I was a researcher and digital producer there working kind of on their online platforms. And that was a really good start to kind of like get my head into like disability media and storytelling. And then I, for the last five years, I've been at Stuff. So I've had various roles there um, as digital producer, homepage editor, and most recently a reporter on the Potiaki team telling disability stories. It does does seem like you're, both of your lives have almost been uh, leading to, to this one moment uh, when, you, when you put it that way. Um, Red, I was wondering if you could start by just giving me a sense, before we talk about the, the D-list itself, give me a sense of what you perceive as the current state of media for or about people with disabilities. Like You've got, you know, from, from our conversations, a pretty specific diagnosis of how hopefully, let's give them some credit, well-intentioned outlets can still end up recycling over familiar tropes in a way that the, the D-list intends to be quite a, a powerful counter to. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one, right? Because I think stories and narratives play such a profound role in how we shape our understanding of the world and, and of people. And I think I think there are a number of players in the kind of disability narrative space that have been doing really important work for a long period of time. I think what is true also is that it, the time has come for a shift in those dominant paradigms. I mean, my friend Philip Patston talks about the three T's of disability storytelling, the three tropes being stories about trauma, stories about tragedy, and stories about triumph, triumph over disability. And I think the unfortunate kind of cumulative effect of those tropes and their prevalence is that we tend to see disability through these quite deficit-based paradigms. We see disability as a tragedy that has befallen someone, a, a traumatic event that has somehow, um, you know, diminished their personhood or their existence. Or we see disability as this obstacle that you need to overcome in order to be as normal as everyone else. And I think what's really fascinating about looking at those stories as a disabled person is just how disconnected and almost um, wildly kind of... Um, oppositional they are to the lives that we lead you know if you know disabled people you know they're some of the most hilarious creative sassy salty people that you could hope to meet and yet the stories that are told about us are these like weirdly infantilized paternalistic um, narratives and so I think there's just a natural kind of space that has just been sitting there for <laughs> ages waiting for someone or waiting for the right kind of moment, the right funding environment, the right ingredients to come together to 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 offer something um, and to actually fill the gap for stories told by disabled people for disabled people. And 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 yes for disabled people, but also in such a way that the, the folks who are natural allies of disability communities can get behind and kind of revel in those um those magic stories as well that right now are just kind of missing from the zeitgeist. 
No, that's a really powerfully put. Uh, so, Olivia, prior to now, you worked for Staff, which is the the largest employer of journalists in the country. Um, what what was that experience like for you? Thinking probably more so about your time on Potiaki, uh, both in terms of the scope of your work and its impact. Yeah, well, I think I was quite lucky at Staff. I got to kind of like be in the hustle and bustle of a busy newsroom as a digital producer, kind of not doing any disability storytelling. Um, I did a lot of kind of live events, live blogging, live streams, um, breaking news. And so it was quite nice just to like figure out the mechanics of a big news organisation like stuff and be a part of that in, in, you know, every day. And so, but I still always noticed when there were stories about disabled people that I was just like, oh, you know, cringing that read described. And, you know, I think as someone with a disability, um, and having quite a visible disability with being, you know, using a wheelchair, you can kind of see how those stories kind of translate into your everyday life, just how people read the news and then how they treat you in real life is is quite funny. I mean, the other day, I think I was going for lunch and some me and then, you know, a walking non-disabled friend were just on the road and someone came up to me and said, you're really awesome, you know, and they didn't say it to the other person, just directly at me. And I wish my friend was like, nah, she's a real dickhead. Like, I just, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, you know, just transitioning from, you know, look, being very aware of those types of stories. And so then when I transitioned into the Potiaki team at stuff, just telling disability stories, um, it was a real scary but exciting moment because I knew I had this kind of I feel like I had this responsibility to disabled people to tell stories that they could relate to you know tell stories that we've been wanting to tell for a long time but were never told or hadn't been told from the right kind of angle the right perspective so I think it was um yeah it was really cool but and I you know I really hope I did a good job and maybe I didn't do it perfectly all the time but I think just knowing that I was a disabled person telling these stories like Made a made a difference to what you'd seen in the past. So I mean that that kind of sets up really the the D list itself. Uh, Red, tell tell me about this idea because it's it it's a quite a profound one uh, in in terms of its intention versus even you know the likes of of attitude which has been a very big really the dominant player in this space for such a long time, but. You know, when we first met, you you explained it to me, and I felt like it was one of the most pure, kind of coherent ideas for a, a new media platform that I've heard in in some time. What what is the genesis of the idea? Mm, it's actually got a really um, rich origin story, which I'm just kind of low key obsessed with because I think it's very easy for these things to emerge as a kind of a, on the back of an individual or the back of a couple of individuals. But the truth is that this project actually emerged from quite an extraordinary co-design process. So it was in 2020 and the then Disability Rights Commissioner, Paula Tesserero, she's always been very kind of emphatic that if we want to see real changes for disabled people in terms of social outcomes, health outcomes, education, employment, because, you know, you name the social statistic and disabled people are very much at the bottom of the heap right now. And her kind of thesis was, well, if we started to address some of the attitudes that sat behind the kind of people who work within those systems, we might actually get some substantive outcome and uh, changes in terms of outcomes as well. So she was always really... Um, 
kind of passionate about this idea that if we can change attitudes, we can change outcomes. And if you think about the way we have historically looked at, thought about, talked about disability, it is very much through that kind of deficit charity-based mindset. So um, at the time, Curative and, and the wonderful team headed up by Eddie Royal there came together alongside the Human Rights Commission and actually alongside disability communities more broadly to undertake this quite extensive co-design process. So over about a year, we spoke with over 200 disabled people, non-disabled people to really get to the bottom of what are those attitudes out there that are preventing disabled people from kind of participating fully in society, from having the job they want, from attending the school they want? And I think the idea going in was that we might make some sort of campaign off the back of that. And, you know, you, you can imagine what something like that would look like, right? It would be a series of TVCs and posters and it would be like, treat disabled people just like you want to be treated. And, like, we've done that before. You know, we've been there, we've done that, we've done the whole disability awareness thing. Um, and what we actually realised through that process is that what was missing in this whole jigsaw puzzle was something for disabled people ourselves. You know, we held these workshops, these hui, these talanoa spaces where disabled people came together and it was just revelatory, you know? There was this real magic, surprise, surprise, in bringing people together who experienced the world in a similar way but who were also kind of wanting to create something better, something that doesn't exist right now. And so there was this real magic, actually, that happened in these spaces where we just brought disabled people together with no non-disabled people around. There was no kind of weird power dynamic. There was no one controlling the space. It was just us. And this kind of um, yeah, visceral kind of raucous joy that comes from when you bring people together who experience the world in a similarly unique way. And so I think from that process, what we identified was that the opportunity here was not to make something else for non-disabled people to raise their awareness because we've been banging that drum for a long time. And look, it, 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 it's, it had its place and it still does, right? We've got to keep doing that work. But we sort of had this moment where we were like, well, what about us? Like, what are we making just for disabled people? What are we doing to kind of reflect our own worlds back at us in a way that's congruent with our own real experiences? Because right now, I and mean, Olivia spoke to it before, like the experience of consuming disability media as a disabled person is like being gaslit 24-7 because the stories that you see told about you are nothing like the, the worlds and the relationships and the experiences that you have yourself, you know? And so I think there was an opportunity to create something pretty unique and create something aspirational and replenishing and joy-filled and sassy and um, a bit dark, you know, because humour sometimes is what gets us through the hard stuff. So this isn't by any means saying that disability is marvellous and wonderful and, and, you know, sort of happy and fluffy 24-7, it is absolutely about acknowledging the tough stuff, but it's about acknowledging the tough stuff in a way that is, you know, that is true to us and our experiences of the world. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's such an interesting point you make about the uh, you know how this should be. Um, you know, you know, if you, if this is your the the problem, which I think you've very um, explained quite brilliantly there. What what is the solution? It does feel like very frequently, the the sort of typical government response is a let's do a campaign so that we can say that we did a thing. Maybe it works a bit for a period of time, but 
you know that 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 kind of a, a TVC which is intent, you know inevitably reductive and a you know maybe some some outdoor posters and so on. It's just with something as as enormous and complex as the world that you're just and nuanced as the world that you're discussing. Uh, it just feels like it's inevitably going to barely scratch the surface and, do, and be something you do to say that you've done it rather than something profound. But the flip side of that is if the government is very happy to fund campaigns, it's not very often in the business of funding a, a startup media organisation. Um, that's an altogether more complex uh, question to, to answer. How did you how did you go about that side of of building the um, the sort of financial case so that you could actually, you know, hire Olivia and and get get to work? Mm. So there's so many layers to this, and I that would almost be another episode in and of itself. So I'll try to keep it as kind of top line as I can. But I think there's a couple of factors that played into it. The first is that the partner driving this whole thing from the beginning was Te Kahui Te Katangata, the Human Rights Commission, and the fantastic staff there. And I think Paula, obviously she's moved on now into her new role at Faikaha, but Paula was a huge um, gift to this project in terms of the trust that she engendered within those community spaces. So we had Paula in our corner, we had the Human Rights Commission in our corner. We had an amazing group of funders who have been on this journey for, um, you know, two years now. So before... Before we had funders, um, philanthropic funders commit to this project, that they stayed on this journey for 12, 18 months, and that was quite intentional. And so they were part of the co-design process. They received regular updates through the thing. So we really made a conscious effort from the beginning to bring those funders on the journey with us. So when the moment came to say, hey, listen, we're ready to go, do you, know, <laughs> do you want to support us to really make this thing happen? They they were absolutely you know all in because they'd seen the rigor the depth the kind of substance of of the co design process, um, and so I think in many ways, um, and obviously you know the creative team have got a really strong track record in the social marketing space, and I think what we proposed in the end was was yes this is a, a media organisation and yes this is about telling stories by us for us but it's also all about community development. It's all about actually nurturing the next generation of disabled storytellers and creatives. You know, if this was just the Olivia and Red show, there's no way that this would have the legs that it needs to have. What this needs to be very much a broad church, and a, and our work has to be about growing the the capability and capacity of disabled people to contribute to this work. I mean. I make no secret about the fact that I had a huge amount of internal turmoil about the conversations that I was having about potentially um, bringing Olivia over to the D-list because she's basically one of our only disabled journalists in the country. And I think when you're dealing with a, you know, a, a, such a taonga and such a treasured resource in terms of our ability to advocate for our own people and tell our own stories, um, you know, we've got no choice but to grow the, the number of people who can contribute to that work. And so I think one of the things I'm so excited about with the D-List and the opportunity that it presents is the fact that we have this time, we have resource to really commit to making sure that Olivia's not carrying the entirety of all that disability communities on her shoulders as our, you know, as one of a, a, a handful of disabled journalists. I think we have a real responsibility to to yes, tell our stories, but do so in a way that, that, that brings up the next generation with us. So, Olivia, you know, obviously you're, you're a, a crucial part of this. 
uh, you're the editor of the the publication, but at the same time you were in a position, as as Brad says, this uh, this one which must have felt both for you personally and and for your community of one of of huge importance. What was it about Red's pitch that that made you confident that this was the right move? And you know, must have been like one that that felt kind of, if not freighted with risk, it certainly was was a move away from from a, a fantastic gig and into the unknown to some extent. Yeah, well, I think Red also mentioned time, and I think that's one thing I'm really grateful that he gave me a lot of time to think about it. And I think initially I was like. That's nice, but no thanks. <laughs> and so, because, um, again, I loved my job at Stuff. I loved the Potiaki team and the work that I was doing there was so important. And so, um, you know, like I told so many people, you know, it was my dream job. And so um, to think about what, not how my life personally would look different, but, yeah, that contribution to, like, the whole media landscape Um what that would look like. Yeah, it was a huge kind of burden on my shoulders to think about. Um, and I think when, uh, you know, in, when I was telling, you know, some of my bosses at Stuff about it and the opportunity and things like that, I think, you know, I got quite emotional telling all of them because they know how, how much I love the job and the work that we do there. Um, but I think what really helped um, was, you know, one of my news directors said, you've got to really follow your purpose. You don't need to, you know, you shouldn't be aligning yourself with a company or an organisation because who knows what will happen in the future. But when you really, like, align yourself with your purpose, and, my, you know, I really feel like this is that same purpose in terms of, like, storytelling about disabled people. And I think the fact that we are unapologetically disabled and the audience is disabled is really special just because... Um, we don't need to, I guess, water down what we're trying to communicate, whereas, you know, like Red said, you know, that kind of advocacy journalism and awareness stuff that I was doing at Stuff is important. But in a way, I did kind of have to maybe perhaps tone down some of the stuff so it was more palatable for a non-disabled audience. So here it's really cool because we can be, um, you know, in terms of our content, it can be a lot more unapologetic, but also, you know, we kind of asking those questions that disab only disabled people would kind of have the audacity to ask. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. So so when we first met, um, Red, like I said, you, you had this like real clarity of vision. Um, and 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 a sense of what the publication would, how how it would would sound, and 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 I think Olivia, you just alluded to this, like that that crucial sense of we are writing for a disabled audience, uh, 
in the voice that we understand and have never heard in you know sort of expressed in in public spaces um beyond the you know once you've done that big co-design process how did you go about assembling that into a kind of a a kind of coherent vision that you were you felt like was ready to to start the process of going from a big idea into something that would would ultimately uh, be 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 ready to launch. Mm. It's funny. I think one of the things that I've probably always known, but only recently kind of have been able to put words to, is that I think in many ways the D list has always existed. You know, and I think anyone who I'll explain what I mean. I think anyone who who is part of a kind of historically marginalized or underserved community will understand this. They'll understand the the experience of having kind of this one world where you hang out and share in jokes and like deeply painful experiences with your community, and then you'll go out into the kind of mainstream media spaces and 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 kind of um, you know consume narratives and stories that feel wildly divorced from these authentic experiences you're having over here. And so I think <laughs> to some extent that was actually the easy part, like putting the kind of the, the vision, the kind of strategy, the, the, the threads around the D-list. I mean, they're, they're just there. You know, you go hang out with a group of disabled people, it's all there. And I think it was just about how do we bottle that essence of being in those community spaces and make that and turn it into a brand, you know, that, that people know and trust and, and how do we how do we keep that experience um, as kind of uh, editorially tight and um, consistent as possible, whilst also acknowledging that there isn't any one experience of disability? And I think that's one of the things that can freak so many people out, so many non-disabled people out. It's like, oh God, how do I do disability storytelling when I've got you know wheelchairs over there and then blind people over there and deaf people over there? And it's like it can all just feel a bit overwhelming, right? And I think that's part of the reason why there's such a scarcity of of good kind of journalism and or storytelling out there about disabled people. But once you get disabled people driving those those kind of um, those visions and those those vehicles, then I think that's when you unlock the magic. I think unfortunately what we're also dealing with is like generations of conditioning to believe that disabled people aren't capable of doing this work. You know, I think the classic experience for disabled people is being invited onto a, an advisory group or a, you know, some sort of um, sounding board without any real ability to, to drive the execution and delivery of a thing. And so I think that's what's fundamentally different about the dealers is that we've got disabled people leading our board, we've got disabled only disabled people on our staff, and we really believe in the power of people with disabilities to make this thing happen. Um, and so I think it's not hard for us, it's not scary for us, and and so much of what the D-list is and hopes to be is just already in disabled people. It's just bringing that to the surface, you know, and I take so much inspiration from the places like Etangata and the work that Mahitahi is doing on Instagram at the moment with the Tuturu campaign and you know, other publications by historically marginalized communities that kind of just do that thing of surfacing community values and surfacing community energy in a way that feels really congruent with those communities. And I really hope that the D-list can, can be that for disabled people as well. So one thing that you've done, and I think this is where it really speaks to that, uh, you know, that, that wanting to be a step change in the... Uh, almost in the tone uh, more more than anything of uh, 
disability or storytelling uh, in in this space is like the, this thing looks amazing you know like it's got a really kind of poppy brand feel that kind of feels like it can it will naturally encourage a very sort of fresh modern or uh, authentic voice whereas you know when you think about uh sort of you know community centric journalism for whatever reason um it tends to be that that's almost an afterthought that that, that just telling the story is enough and that if people you know that getting people to it is is almost like uh or, or, or making it feel kind of cool or or uh you know modern is is, is almost like somehow betraying it uh it, you you can feel that way in terms of the way that that design is is handled where, where did that come from and and how important was it um for the pair of you to kind of feel like this was you know this had a real look and and feel a very considered look and feel to it I mean, first of all, you know, huge hats off to the curative team for the work they did on the brand development. I think it's extraordinary. But I also think it's come from this desire to, like, really give brand disability a kick up the ass because actually, again, it's this, it's this bizarre kind of experience where, you know, Liv and I, we have so many amazing, cool, capable, hilarious, disabled friends. And yet you look at kind of brand disability more broadly out there in the community and it's just fairly bleak and it's like actually how do we create a brand that is that is um that reflects the the people and the spaces that we spend time in you know and actually makes disability feel like somewhere that you want to spend time and you want to hang out we deserve that you know we deserve to have spaces that are cool and fun and um and aspirational and i think uh, you know a lot of inspiration was taken from you know, uh, the, the the journey that the queer communities have gone on around the way in which they harness joy to bring people together around a common kaupapa and around a common cause. And I think, I really hope the D-list is a place for disability joy, you know, somewhere that young disabled people in particular finally see a space where they are reflected, where they want to be, where they want to be seen, where they want to hang out. And I think... Um, I actually think brand is often hugely underrated as an ingredient to make that happen. It's often the thing that gets the least resource, that gets the least kind of consideration. But I think for the D-list, um, you know, I wouldn't say it many places other than this podcast, but I think brand is a huge part of, of what we are, you know, our initial offering at least as a way to bring people together. Yeah, I mean, as looking, you know, when we kind of set our editorial vision and things like that, one of our values is that we will be beautiful in terms of we want it to be just visually just attractive and, um, you know, just, and we're lucky we have, you know, funding and resources to make it to the high standards, you know, as other media organisations. And, yeah, I think because disability has been in this kind of like medical type model for so long and when you look at kind of like medical disability type spaces it is very like clinical and boring type websites where it's just information just put out there in bullet points whereas yeah the design is just so beautiful and stunning for the d-list so yeah we want it to be a space where people feel welcome and and you know want to be part of it do you have a sense of how we'll sort of operate and express i mean you know it, it's the 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 gift and the curse of uh, digital publishing is that you can basically be anything you want. Uh, 
you know, what sort of what kind of story forms you'll aim for, audio, video, how you'll use social, even down to kind of relationships with other publications and, and how you will, because the, the other hard thing is just growing an audience in 2023 is different to what it might have been in, in prior eras where there was a bit more free distribution available. Do you want to speak to that a little? Yeah, I guess one thing that's, um, and you know, in terms of like launching and going live, a lot of the work that's been done leading up to this, you know, all the co-design, all the communities, all the relationship building that Red's been doing for the last two to three years is really vital in terms of our audience. Um, you know, our audience is disabled people and I think, you know, we've reached, uh, you know, this community really well and built really good relationships. You know, we're not going to be putting out a press release to every mainstream news organisation to write a news, you know, to write a news article about it because that's not our audience. So I think that's what's really cool about, um, you know, attracting our audience. And so in terms of content, we are navigating that and figuring out what our voice is as we go live. Um, we've got some, ama you know, an amazing group of like, um, you know, a small group of like contributors at the moment who are, um, you know, being part of the co-design process as well and totally just get it. And, uh, you know, we'll be writing um, opinion pieces, columns and doing news as well. And um, wanting to, you know, in terms of news, it will be from that kind of really strong disabled lens in terms of what disabled people like want to know about. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be a mix. And I think eventually we will be wanting to do more um, kind of multimedia stuff. But like any kind of organisation or launch, like you just want to go live and just figure it out as you go along. Um, you know, just the amount of support we've had before going live has been amazing as well. So um, all the people, um, you know, who've heard of it and want to get involved, even if they're not regular contributors, like just the excitement around it has been really exciting. How have you have you gone to to sort of find your your people? Because as as you said, Red, if you you know that there hasn't been a historically a, a lot of uh, disabled journalists or, or sort of who are outwardly or, or, or explicitly focusing on that community, like so so how have you kind of especially in in this it's not quite stealth mode but certainly pre launch mode built out that community and, and if there are people, whether they're listening or, or, or they know someone who they think would be a great contributor, what's your sort of process for um, finding that group who will become your sort of your core of, uh, of uh, creators? I mean, certainly what I found so encouraging and I shouldn't say not surprising, but not hugely surprising is just how much um, latent appetite and demand there is for a space like this, you know, every single disabled person that we've shared this concept with has been like, oh, great, about damn time, you know, like it's really is the sense that we've all been sitting around waiting for finally for someone to reflect our worlds in, in a way that feels remotely um, aligned with how we experience them. And so I think um, in many respects, it's actually been a real delight working with our initial batch of content contributors. And, um, and generally they're found through relationships, um, Liv and I joke that sometimes it can feel like there are only about a dozen disabled people in New Zealand because, you know, we 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 tend to get an outsized share of the the, the kind of airtime. And I think the job of the D list is to make sure that it's not those usual suspects showing up in this space every time. You know, we do want to broaden the tent. We want more people to feel like actually disability is an identity in a space that I can 
I can feel proud to be a part of. I think that's really one of the things we're working towards. But um, what I love about the initial batch of contributors that we've got working for the D-List and, and writing pieces and doing illustrations and doing kind of audio stuff is that, A, they're not just the usual suspects. They're not the famous disabled people, but they're also people who are on a bit of a journey around what it means to identify as a disabled person. What does that mean for me? And I think, you know, I've got this amazing illustrator down in Wellington who, you know, is actually quite well known within New Zealand, but has also lived with an eye condition their entire life and has kind of been on this and actually tells a story in their illustration beautifully on the side at the moment, um, tells a story of their kind of journey in and out of disability community spaces and where does she fit? And, you know, what's her kind of journey around using the word disability? What does that mean when she uses that word? And, and, and how disabled do you have to be in order to use that word? You know, these kind of really complex and quite existential questions that hopefully the dealers can create a space to kind of unpack and explore and, and, and for people to find their own tribes within that. You know, we keep coming back to this idea that there is no one singular or homogenous experience of disability and how do people find, yeah, find their own groups within that, you know? And... So you're you, you're launching this week, and you know, with all of the kind of bundled energy, nerves, uh, excitement that that uh, goes along with that. How will you know it's working? Like, have you got a sort of an idea in your head about the the kind of signals that will sort of tell you that that's uh, you know m moving from that that kind of uh, the the sort of co-design and the conversations to like the live product. I'm keen to hear your thoughts, Liv, too. I think for me, if we don't have the trust and support and afi and totoko of our communities, then, like, we might as well pack our bags and go home, you know? And I think we have to keep walking that really delicate line of both creating compelling content that you know, builds that audience that grows our our, our kind of, um, yeah, grows our audience whilst at the same time working at the speed of trust and working at the speed of our communities and making sure that we don't get so carried away with this exciting, you know, new toy that we are building that we forget about, you know, parts of our communities that have actually been doing the battling for, for you know, have cleared the way for us to do this. You know, if people didn't fight for deinstitutionalization in the 80s, people like Olivia and I would still be living in hospitals. You know, if people didn't fight for minimum accessibility requirements in the building code, we would not be able to get into this building today. So I think there's a lot that we can sometimes take for granted. And I think it's about taking our communities with us, making sure that they are vibing with this work, making sure that we are listening deeply and making sure that we are responsive to what they are telling us, whilst at the same time holding a vision for something that just doesn't exist right now. It's so hard for us, for disabled people, to imagine something new when it simply doesn't exist right now. And I think um, part of the part of what our job is actually is to fight that kind of... the, the the lack of permission to imagine something different that, that we just haven't had for such a long time. What about you? Well, I was going to say, I want every 
place to have ramps after we launch. <laughs> no. Feels reasonable. <laughs> um, no, I guess from an editorial side of things, um, part of my job is, you know, I, I've had this kind of career in a mainstream news organisation which is used to the churn, is used to kind of deadlines, but I guess the nature of the media industry, like any other industry, is not really designed or set up for disabled people. So I guess for me, part of my job is to create a space where, you know, there's kind of two sides of me. There's like one side, you know, I want to bring in all the best disabled writers that can write for the D-list, but also like young disabled people or people who want to write may not have um, the, you know, have, have had that environment that can um, support them to get to that point of, you know, we'll talk about high editorial standards and, you know, high expectations. Um, so my job is, you know, is I want to be able to foster an environment where people feel comfortable to do that and kind of gain the skills. Um, and yeah, and it's working at the pace of the environment as well. And so I guess, you know, seeing content on the dealers that is you know, a range of different voices, different disabilities, different perspectives, um, and also quite, um, you know, scene setting in, in the media industry as well. So so lastly, I would, I, you know, that that's the sort of how will we know it's working on, you know, uh, in the first few months piece, but what, let's kind of look ahead to, to a future, you know, what, what would be an amazing sort of, vision of of what success looks like for the organization you know i think when we first spoke red you said that there isn't much not much like this not just in new zealand but but almost anywhere like would you, do you have a vision for growing it beyond this country or at least using it to address issues and culture beyond our borders in a way that might might resonate with disabled people all over the world in some respects I think well, I think there are two things, right? Yeah. That are kind of um, kind of have a, that are symbiotic in some respect. So we talk about the dealers being the home of disability culture in Aotearoa. We really want to incubate and grow and manifest a greater sense of who we are as people, and and coming to the dealers for that kind of taste, if you like, of disability culture. But at the same time, we also know that disabled people are a woefully underrepresented group of people across society in Aotearoa, right? Whether it, particularly within parliament, but if you look across the board. And so I think part of our hope is that we can get kind of disabled people to be understood as a constituency that it's not okay to ignore anymore. You know, I think we, right now, it feels very easy to put disability in the too hard basket because of the medical lenses that Liv talked about earlier. And I think really the opportunity here is to put disability on the map as 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 a as a proud and you know um, mobilized constituency, mobilized set of communities who are demanding better for our people. And I think right now it's so easy for that to be for us to be ignored by people with power. Um, because actually our systems are set up in such a way that that makes it, you know, it's it's actually very straightforward to do that. So I do I do hope that we can manifest this home for disability culture into a into a um, into actually an advocacy space and a mobilisation space. You know, again, I take so much inspiration from the the proud history of the queer rights movement and the way in which 
they were able to bring people together around a common cause. And, and they, they started with their community first, right? And they mobilized and they agitated and they kind of formed that, that sense of solidarity. And it was only at that point that allies were invited in. But fundamentally, it was the allies piece that tipped things over the edge as far as mainstream civil rights legislation changes go. And so, you know, it's no surprise to me that the recent conversation around the accessibility legislation in Aotearoa kind of, um, you know, lacked that same degree of loud, raucous um, sort of uh, allyship, you know, that we've seen in other parts of, of society. And so I really hope that we can turn this this kind of emergent space of disability culture into a more kind of full-bodied advocacy um, vehicle in time. Um, honestly, it's it's such an amazing uh, achievement even getting to this point, and yet I have the strong sense that there is so much more uh, to, to come out of the D-list. Uh, thank you both so much for, for coming up on The Fold today, and yeah, really looking forward to see, to see where this thing goes. Thank you. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.